welcome to my podcast, The Government Mechanic. I am your host, Dr. Lynn Sandra Khan, and I am The Government Mechanic. My job is to help you look under the hood of government to figure out exactly what's broken so you can decide what actions will fix what problems. This is episode three. We taped our first two episodes on February 22nd and 23rd, and then Russia invaded Ukraine. So we delayed our launch a little bit, and more importantly, we brought forward four episodes related to peacemaking, diplomacy, conflict resolution, and community peace building. This is episode three. I am delighted to present a newly edited version of an interview I did with Ambassador John McDonald in 2017. The most important part for me about these clips are both the examples that the ambassador gives of important moments in face-to-face dialogue aimed at conflict resolution and peacemaking. The second important part is, think of this, for thousands of years, war was declared or peace was declared or ceasefires were issued because of the actions of government leaders, whether they were ambassadors, presidents, warlords, or kings. It was that top level, what's called track one diplomacy between national leaders. In the late 1980s, Ambassador McDonald, with other diplomats at the U.S. State Department, tried to convince our government that there was actually something called citizen diplomacy. There were, there were important efforts related to conflict resolution and ceasing violent action that were because of actions of citizens in different arenas. So without further ado, I am delighted to present this video of Ambassador John McDonald, my mentor, my teacher. Ambassador McDonald passed away in 2019, but as you can see from these video clips, his voice was strong and his personality was charismatic and diplomatic. With no further ado, here's Ambassador McDonald. I will see you again in episode four. Ambassador John McDonald, thank you for this interview. For 40 years, you worked as a diplomat at the U.S. Department of State, negotiating, mediating, and doing the work you call Track One Diplomacy, government to government. You worked in Berlin, Frankfurt, Bonn, Paris, Ankara, Tehran, Karachi, Cairo, and Washington, D.C. You were appointed ambassador twice by President Jimmy Carter and twice by President Ronald Reagan to represent the United States at various U.N. world conferences. In the 1980s, you began writing about Track Two Diplomacy, people to people, non-governmental. By the time you retired from the Foreign Service in 1987, you had five tracks in diplomacy. In late 1988, you became president of the Iowa Peace Institute, and in 1992, back here in Washington, D.C., you started the Institute for Multi-Track Diplomacy. You've been at it for 15 years. You've written eight books and many, many articles. There are now nine tracks of diplomacy, and your institute has projects in Europe, Asia, and Africa. Ambassador McDonald, tell us more about peace building and multi-track diplomacy. How much time do I have? Take as long as you're willing to give. I can talk for hours about that question. Well, the concept of track one and track two is rather interesting. 
because for all those years I was focused on track one, which is government to government, which is not very risk-taking, not very imaginative, always under instructions. And so you had a fairly straight line that you had to follow. In 1985, 1985, I wrote the first book on track two diplomacy. It's non-government to non-government. It's people to people. It's small group to small group. And it is risk-taking. It is innovative. It's challenging. It does things that governments are afraid to do, don't want to do, or don't want to support. All in the field of peace building and peacemaking. So our nine-track approach, our multi-track diplomacy, is what I call a, a systems approach to peace. It means that all of these tracks, which I'll talk about in a moment, have to work together. And that no one track, including government, can ever by itself solve a peace problem or create a peace that will last. That's the fundamental premise of what I'm about. You need collaboration among peoples to bring about a peace that will actually last. So track three is the role of business, a major factor. When they have the money, they have the skills, they have the vision, they can bring about change. But they're a hard group to sell. Track four is individual people exchanges, people coming from one culture to this culture, for example, learning new skills and going back and carrying out those skills in their own country. Track five is what we do as a small institute, a small non-governmental organization, not-for-profit here in Roslyn, Virginia. It's education, training, a little research. Track six is peace activism. It's people power. It's the power of people collectively to change systems non-violently. Track seven is religion. Wherever we go, we work with people of different religions. Track eight is money. I should tell you, we're always broke. Uh, that's the way the field works. It's hard to raise money for peace these days in the United States. We don't charge for our services overseas, so we have to raise money to go overseas and do the work that we do. And all of our work, basically, is internationally overseas. Track nine is the center circle in our logo, which is communication, which is what we're doing right now. That's the heart of this whole concept, is, is communication. The ability of people to talk to each other. And that's a skill that many people still do not have to this day. One of my fundamental beliefs is that you have to, if you want to solve a conflict at any level of society, with your spouse and your kids, or family, the city council, nationally, internationally, the first step is to sit down face to face like we're doing, and talk about it. If you can't do that, you'll never solve the problem. So that's where I'm coming from. Ambassador, can you describe some examples of successful peace building? I think these days peacemaking is invisible to nearly everyone. Well, I have a lot of examples of success, actually. Our first project uh, was in Cyprus, which is an interesting case in itself. Uh, we started in 1992. Uh, Cyprus was uh, a part of the British Empire until 1960 when it was suddenly declared 
a free and independent nation as the British Empire was collapsing. And for four years they had peace on this lovely island in the eastern Mediterranean. And then there was an attempted coup. Greece got a little greedy and wanted to take over the island. Didn't work the coup, but there was a lot of killing or ethnic cleansing, as they called it in those days. And the U.S. Security Council met and put in a peacekeeping force uh, just a few months later, 1964. Ten years later, 1974, there was another attempted coup. This time, Turkey sent in 35,000 troops, a lot more killing. And all the Muslims moved to the north, and all the Christians moved to the south, totally separate from each other when they've been living together for a thousand years in peace. You couldn't cross the green line, which the UN set up, which has divided the capital city of Nicosia in half. You couldn't send a letter, you couldn't make a phone call. Totally isolated one side of the island from the other in 1974. We were invited there in 1992. Total stalemate between 1974 and 1992. No mm -hmm. action whatsoever took place. And the, some of the people who asked us to come in were frustrated by this stalemate. Well, we only go where the people in a conflict invite us to come and see if we can help them. So that's a pretty basic issue. It's the people that we work with. So we got invited to Cyprus. We got permission from the UN to go to the other side. We went back and forth. We went for three weeks and just listened. Something that governments don't know how to do. And we asked people what their needs were. How could we as a small NGO help them? We didn't have money, but we had some skills. And they decided that they'd like very much for us to carry out some trainings in the field of conflict resolution to help break this stalemate that they were faced with all those decades. And so we decided to take on the project. Whenever we take on a project, we make a five-year commitment to that project. It's not a weekend, not a month. It's five years or longer if they want. And actually, we worked for eight years in Cyprus. Hmm. So we took on the project. And then we went and we called on four Track 1 entities. We called on Mr. Denktosh, the Prime Minister in the Turkish Muslim North. We called on Mr. Claridis, the Prime Minister in the South. We called on the State Department, Washington, and on the island, the ambassador. We called on the UN in New York and on the island, the peacekeepers. And we said the same thing to all four of these crack one groups. We said, we've been invited on your beautiful island by all of those tracks uh, that make up the community to try to see if we can be of help providing conflict resolution training. And so we wanted you to know about it. And we invite you as track one to participate in every one of those trainings that we would hope to hold. We didn't ask for their permission, but we wanted them to know about it. Well, they were still a little puzzled about who we were and what we were all about. So I said, I believe that every conflict in the world can be resolved. There's no such thing as an intractable conflict. It takes time, it takes skill, it takes a little money, it takes patience. But eventually, you are going to sign a peace treaty on this island of yours. And when you do that, all the Turkish soldiers will go home, and all the UN peacekeepers will go back to where they've come from. And you'll have peace on this beautiful island for three weeks.
And then someone who doesn't want peace will create an act of violence. They'll kill somebody or blow something up. And by that time, we will have trained a critical mass of people from all of these tracks on this island of yours. And some of them will have connections in that village where that act of violence took place or that community. And they will go there and they will contain the conflict. That's their goal, to contain the conflict so it doesn't spread across the island. So our goal is to break the cycle of conflict. To break the cycle of conflict. If you do that, then you can begin to build a peace process. Well, somehow they seem to understand and uh, they didn't seem to object. So we worked separately for 15 months with the Muslims in the north, separate from the Christians in the south. And then we brought six people from each side together on the Green Line at the Libra Palace Hotel. Six Christians and six Muslims. They were political leaders, a university president, a businessman, a lawyer, a journalist, a poetess. They'd never met before, but because they trusted us, and that's what's critical in this whole business, and they had the skills, they bonded within an hour and they became our steering committee. And over the next eight years, we trained 2,500 Cypriots together. That's a lot of people. And then we ran out of money and we left the island. Well, three years ago, suddenly the deputy prime minister of the Turkish Muslim North declared to the world, I'm opening the gates on the Green Line. I want the people to move back and forth as they used to do. I want them to get to know the other side. I want them to visit where they used to live. I want to change the whole dynamics of this island. He raised the gates and within the first 24 hours, 5,000 people went back and forth across that line, both sides back and forth. 5,000 in 24 hours. Nobody was shot, nobody was killed, nobody was hurt. The people that we had trained on both sides told their friends, it's okay, you know, it's okay to go across that line. Don't, don't worry about it. Within the next three months, 700,000 people crossed that green line. There are only a million people on the island. Who raised the gates? One of those six Muslim that we brought together after 15 months on the island of working together. We worked with him for years. Ten years later, he had the power to raise the gates, and he changed the dynamics of the island peacefully. And now we have peace on Cyprus. Ambassador, can you say a little more about what was in the training with the 2,500 Cypriots? What are you training people to do? Well, we train them in listening skills. Mm. We train them in how to put themselves in the shoes of the other person. Uh, we, I'll tell you one little story that uh, appeal to me, uh, the power of this. We, we always sit in a circle. We sit in a circle for four reasons. First is that it's practical, everybody can see everybody else and hear everybody else. The second reason, it's a symbol of peace building in every civilization known to man if you go back far enough in their history. The elders will sit around in a circle, sometimes a fire in the middle, sometimes there's not. But it's been a symbol of peace building for thousands of years. 
Third reason is that it allows the energy to flow across the circle without impediments with chairs and desks and that sort of thing. Energy is important to me because you can begin to sense what the people on the other side of that circle are thinking about. And the last reason is it's a symbol of our institute, the circle, which I described a few moments ago. So we were, we let it be known that we were going to be uh, holding a training in the, in the Turkish Muslim North. <laughs> but we don't advertise. <coughs> we don't put up signs, we don't go on the radio or television and say we're meeting at this particular place. <coughs> we work by word of mouth. Word of mouth is the way you build trust. If you and I get together and you trust me, the next time we meet you can bring a friend. It's a slow process, but it's a process that lasts. When people come together, they stay together. So there were 35 people in this circle. 40% were women, which is great, because for me, it's the women who are the peace builders in the world, and you can appreciate that. It's the women who are the peace builders. They always get it before the men do. So I was delighted to have 40% of the Muslim population in this 35-person circle to be women. So we went around the circle, and each person, I just wanted to know their first name and, and why they'd come together. We don't probe. We, know we just take people at their own face value. Halfway across the circle, where you're sitting for me, a man spoke up. When we got to him, and he said, I'm a medical doctor. He said, I've hated the Greek Cypriots all my life because they killed both my parents. And he said, but I want to tell you a story about what happened to me. Because when I went on with my education, after my parents died, I became a medical doctor, got married, and I have a 10-year-old son. And the other evening, I went to kiss him goodnight and found lying in bed next to him was a long toy wooden rifle that he'd taken to bed with him. I said to my 10-year-old, why do you have that wooden rifle in bed with you? And the boy said, to kill the Greek Cypriots when they come after me. And the doctor said, I learned a powerful lesson then, and I'm here to say I forgive the Greek Cypriots who killed my parents. I want to learn new skills to pass on to my son. It's the kind of impact that you can have the power of face-to-face -face dialogue. That's right. Can you describe another example of peace building and multi-track diplomacy? Well, yes, they, I, as you say, I have a number, but let me talk about one that is quite relevant in today's world. I want to talk about Kashmir. Now, you may remember the conflict in Kashmir it started out in 1947 when Pakistan was created as a nation and India and Pakistan separated and all the Muslims were supposed to go to Pakistan and all the Christian Hindus <coughs> were supposed to go to India. <coughs> well, in 1947, <coughs> there was a lot of turbulence in that particular <coughs> exchange of populations. <clears throat> but one Maharaja, the Maharaja of Jammu and Kashmir, a province in the north, had the power to decide which way to go. And at the very last moment, <clears throat> in spite of the fact that 85% of the population of the province was Muslim, 
and he decided to go with the Christian, with the Indian Hindus. <clears throat> and that is the root cause of the conflict in Kashmir. The province was divided. The Indians had one part and Pakistan had the other. And they've had problems ever since 1947. In 1995, I was visited by two three-star generals. That's pretty high up in the military ranks. One was from India, one was from Pakistan. They came together to see me. They'd both been invited by the Stimson Center here in Washington, D.C. for a month. They'd both just retired from their military careers. They heard about my institute. And within two minutes after meeting me, they asked me to solve the Kashmir problem. <laughs> and I laughed just like you did, and I said, I can't do that. But these were serious men. They said, we have fought two wars against each other, not knowing each other, of course, over Kashmir. We don't want to fight a third war. We think that your institute may be able to break the stalemate. But they haven't moved. This is what the generals were telling me. And then we would like your help. Well, I said, you don't have any money. We don't have any money. But let me keep this on my radar screen. I've been involved in the subcontinent for years in my diplomatic experience. Maybe we can do something. <clears throat> Two years went by. When one day I was visited by a man named Sandeep Weskalar, who was from Bombay, India. What a little NGO focusing on the Indian Kashmir. He said that he wanted to talk about the future, and I proposed a new idea to him. I said, what about our track three, our business track? How would it be if we could get the business community involved in Kashmir? I said, you know, in 1988, there were 800,000 tourists in Kashmir. Six months later, it was zero over fear. The economy just collapsed. If we could convince business people to take a long-term view, maybe they could invest or reinvest and start up the economy again. Well, he thought it was a great idea, and he invited me to Bombay. The very next day, the State Department brought over in their International Visitors Program, which, by the way, is one of the best programs they have, a man from Lahore, Pakistan, who was a parliamentary leader, and also a businessman, it turned out. He had the Pepsi-Cola franchise in Lahore, now a city of six million people. <clears throat> the same conversation. He loved it. He invited me to Lahore and to Karachi. A week later, I got a letter from a woman in New Delhi, India, saying that the Chamber of Commerce was interested in what we were doing, and perhaps we could come by there and talk. So he had three invitations within 10 days. We've been working with the Dalai Lama for many, many years in Dharamsala, Northeast India. We had some funds to go there. We went there, did some training, and then visited Delhi, Bombay, and Lahore. And then we got some money from the McKnight Foundation in Minneapolis, and the Sasakawa Peace Foundation in Tokyo, and we revisited that area over the next several years. And I finally held a training of 28 business leaders in New Delhi in the early, about four years ago. 
And then a month later, we had 50 business leaders in Pakistan. And that workshop was introduced by a lieutenant general from Pakistan who had come to visit me in the very first instance. So we got the business community in both countries focused on how they might impact successfully on the Kashmir issue. And we pointed out you had to work behind the scenes, informally, unofficially, and talking with their friends in the military and in the government about ideas about how they might begin to change the system. At the same time, we were working with Kashmiris on both sides. I've been to Jammu and Srinagar on the Indian side and Musafirabad on the Pakistan side. And one of our connections in Pakistan said one day, how would it be if you trained parliamentary leaders from Pakistan, Kashmir? I said, great, but we don't have the money. He said, well, we'll raise the money and we want to bring them to Washington, D.C. because they're fairly isolated where they've been. So we have now held four trainings uh, in Washington, D.C. over the last few years for about a total of about 70 parliamentary leaders in Pakistan, Kashmir. In 2004, we got funds from the U.S. Peace Institute here in Washington, D.C., and a private donor. And we brought together, for the first time in history, 20 Kashmiris in Nepal, in Kathmandu, right to the north. Ten from Pakistan Kashmir, ten from Indian Kashmir. Eight of the 20 were women. Very important. And they had a week together, and it was great. They had never met together before. They were all private citizens, civil society, leaders in their respective communities who wanted to come together with the other side for the first time in 50 years. I remember we went separately with the two groups and we brought them together. I mean, after dinner, uh, we were sitting together and one of the Pakistani men said to the Indian side, you know, I'm really fed up with this line of control which was put in in 1964, which we can't cross. My sister lives in Jammu on the Indian side. It's only about 30 miles from my home in Pakistan. I haven't seen my sister in 40 years. But one of the Indian women spoke up and she said, I live in Jammu. Where does your sister live? And he told her. And she said, that's only 10 minutes from my house. She said, you write your sister a letter. We'll take some pictures together. When I get back home, I'll go see your sister and tell her what a great guy you are. <laughs> well, his heart melted on the spot, as you can tell. And so they bonded in that time together. We got more money from the same sources last year, and we held a second uh, workshop in the Maldive Islands in the Indian Ocean, 27 people this time, many from the first group, 14 from Pakistan, 13 from India. By this time, things had improved, and they wanted to do a press release, communication skills out there. And so we had a journalist from each side. They drafted a press release. Everybody agreed to it. And that's the first public action, because it was printed in newspapers all across both countries, about Kashmiris coming together. So that was a great step forward. But the most significant thing that we'd done in that area, and we've been working in Kashmir now for 10 years to show you how long it takes to build the kind of trust relationships we're talking about. I made a speech 
on April 7, 2000, and Musafirabad on the Pakistan side. It's a refugee camp, in pretty grim conditions. Uh, and I reminded them that the year before, 1999, there had been a politician's bus. The Prime Minister of India took a bus from Delhi to Lahore and met with the Prime Minister of Pakistan, and they issued the Lahore Declaration focusing on Kashmir, which was great, but then fell apart for other reasons later. Well, every one of those thousand people in the refugee camp remembered that. I said, I want to start a people's bus, not a politician's bus, a people's bus. So the people from both sides of the border can move back and forth for the first time in their lives peacefully and visit their relatives on the other side and so forth. Well, they thought it was a great idea. So I came back to Washington and began to push governments and the embassies and the press in the region. Whenever I go back, I'd make a speech about the people's bus. And finally, what had to happen did happen. This idea from track two had to move into track one because only track one had the power to raise the gates on that line of control. In September 2003, the Indian government made four track two suggestions, and they used track two, so that makes my ego feel pretty good because the word, the concept had gotten out to the subcontinent. The two, four track two proposals, the third one was the people's bus. And they've taken the language, the idea, totally, and said, let's do this to Pakistan, and four days later, Pakistan said yes. Well, I thought, well, great, that's going to happen, you know, in a month or so. Well, it, it didn't. The diplomats on both sides argued for a year about documents, and do we need passports, visas, whatever. Finally, in December of 2004, the president of Pakistan, the prime minister of India, ordered the diplomats to agree. And so on February 15, 2005, they publicly announced the People's Bus would take place on April 7. 2005, five years of the day after I'd made that proposition. And it did take place. Prime Minister of India and Sonia Gandhi, the head of the Congress Party, flew up to Srinagar to wave goodbye to the bus. It was the number one sign of peace building in the subcontinent since 1947. On April the 8th, the next day, on the front page of the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, was a beautiful picture of 20 Kashmiris from Pakistan crossing the rebuilt and renamed Peace Bridge to go into the Indian side. So a major symbol of peace building, track one taking it over from track two and making it actually happen. That's exciting. What works? What's really important? When designing your training, what elements do you consider critical for success? What's, what comes to mind, first of all, is the ability to listen. The ability to listen sounds so simple to say, but it's very difficult for some people to learn, particularly track one. So listening is critical. And the second thing is patience. Ten years in Kashmir, patience. Governments don't have patience. The politicians want to do it on their watch and get credit for it. 
we put our ego behind us, not in front of us. It's the people who count. So we work with the people because they're the ones who are suffering, and they're the ones who want to bring about change, and they're the ones who will protect us if we have problems uh, because we've been invited by them to participate in what we're doing. So those are some of the things that sort of stand out in my own, in my own memory. Another thing that, that I tell diplomats here in this country, which may impact on the answer to your question, I say you've got to realize when you go overseas how you are perceived today by the rest of the world. I said you're perceived as the most arrogant people in the world. You're perceived as the poorest listeners in the world and you're perceived as the most impatient people in the world. And I said, you put those three things together, you're not a very good diplomat. But it's interesting to note, I tell them, that you have the power within yourself to change those three things. You can learn how to be less arrogant. You can learn how to listen. And you can learn to be patient. And that's a challenge for you and good advice. If you were to step back and look at the group dynamics of these peace-seeking dialogues, can you identify those transformational moments when changes in attitude or breaking through psychological tension somehow propels groups to a broader view? Well, let me give you a third example in which we'll answer your question, and that's our work in Liberia. <clears throat> Liberia, a country in West Africa, founded 150 years ago by freed American slaves that dominated the country and the indigenous people for all those decades. <clears throat> in 1980, a man named Sergeant Doe, the military, pulled off a coup he killed the whole cabinet and the president took over and he ran the country for 10 years. And then he was in turn assassinated and killed in another coup and the whole country fell into total chaos. Down to the tribal level, everybody killing everybody else. It was, it was horrible. The Carter Center in 1992 <coughs> set up a a center in Monrovia, the capital. <clears throat> and they invited us a year or two later <clears throat> to help them <clears throat> in the area of conflict resolution and <clears throat> the training. And so we went there and we eventually identified nine people that we wanted to work with. <clears throat> there were nine of those nine. Seven were men, two were women, seven Christian, two Muslims. They were about at the number three level, the warlords, the deputy warlord, and then number three. There was no safe space in Liberia, no safe haven. And so we took everybody to Ghana, a country nearby. And we went to a lovely place up in the north called Akasambo. And we had 10 days together with those nine people. We were a four-person team. It's a very interesting group. One of them was even a colonel in the, in the military. And we sat in that circle. <clears throat> when the colonel asked if he could 
give a prayer to him. Started. I was delighted. He did uh, in English. The very next day, one of the two Muslims said, "Could we do a prayer in Arabic?" And we said, "Of course." And they did. But that sort of set the tone. But those nine people gathered together, <coughs> and we took a half a day for each of them to tell their story. Now, of course, wherever we go, there's fear. Everybody is afraid of everybody else. And that was certainly true in this circle. They were all afraid of each other, and that actually became a bond over time. But each one of them felt that they were the most traumatized person in the country, but by the time they heard the other stories, they realized that all of them were equally traumatized by the conflict. And that too became a bond. And they had these joint terrible experiences that they had shared together over time. And while we did the trainings that we were talking about and they began to interrelate with each other, the next to the last day, I proposed a new idea. I said, I'd like you as a group to project 25 years into the future. 25 years. What would you like your country to look like in 25 years? Well, that's difficult for anybody to do, but particularly if you worry about whether you're going to survive in a week or two after you get back to your country. <coughs> but I said, I'm not going to put anything writing on the walls or on the blackboards. I just want to listen to you as you talk about your vision for the future. And I will write down what I hear. And I'll summarize it and I'll give it back to you tomorrow morning. We spent the whole day on that very simple exercise. And they got really into it, really involved. And each one of those nine people participated. And I took notes and that night I wrote it up. The next morning I gave it back to them. They didn't change a sentence or a paragraph or a word. It's only half a page. They all had a common vision. All these tribes that have been killing each other for whatever reason, had a common vision of the future of their country. They wanted democracy. They wanted peace. They wanted education. They wanted jobs. They wanted freedom of the press, freedom of religion, all the things that we believe in in this country. They had this common vision, which was so simply stated that that's what they all agreed to. So I said this was fantastic. This was great. Now I wanted them to come back to today's world and could they agree on one step toward that goal by the end of the day, the last day we were together? <coughs> they thought they could. So they worked together. And then finally they came back and announced with pride they had agreed on two steps. <coughs> the first step was to go back to Monrovia and create their own non-governmental organization on peace and conflict resolution. All nine of them working together for peace, which was great. And the second step, they said, we have identified 21 leaders in our conflict, the warlords, the UN, uh, ECOMOG, ECOWAS, the key embassies, 21 different people. And we've agreed that all nine of us together will meet over the next month nine to one in each of those 21 different meetings. We want these people, these leaders, to see physically that we can all work together to build peace. And that's what they did.
What final thoughts do you have for people watching this video, especially those engaged in peace building and multi-track diplomacy? Well, I'm often asked uh, how I transformed from track one to track two. Because <laughs> I was a lawyer, I was a district attorney, I learned win-lose, I win and you lose. And how do you get to win-win? Well, it took a very long time, uh, but I finally uh, achieved that, of that goal. Uh, and I think the most dramatic example of that was a major world conference. I, I worked for many years on United Nations affairs. Uh, in 1964, in Geneva, <coughs> there was a conference on trade and development. They called it UNCTAD-1. And there were about 2,500 delegates there. I was not there. And they, the developing world, forced through 50 resolutions which the West voted against because uh, they didn't like them. I was in my first world conference in 1968 in New Delhi, India, where it was called UNCTAD II. The same 2,500 people were there. First item on the agenda was what did the West do about those resolutions? Well, the West got up and said we didn't do anything about them because a resolution in the UN system is only a recommendation for national action. We voted against them. We had no reason whatsoever to carry them out. Well, this was a total shock, a learning experience for the rest of the world. They realized that what you had to do if you wanted to make progress was build consensus, win-win. And so there were another 50 resolutions adopted by that conference, but 48 of them were negotiated. And they were adopted by consensus. The other two were voted on, they knew nothing would happen. So the West went back home morally bound to try to do something about what they'd agreed to. And that was the first mass learning experience of the power of consensus, the power of win-win. And that's what I've been able to transfer into my life uh, since that particular point in time. The only way you make progress in the world is to build consensus. And the only way to do that, as I said earlier, to sit down face to face and talk about it. That's critical to resolving conflict at every level of society. Thank you very much, Ambassador, for this wonderful interview. <laughs>